How's everybody doing? Good weekend so far? We'll open up to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Have any of y'all ever had like the clueless friend who just doesn't know the right time to ask a question or the right time to say something? It's kind of what we have this morning. And, and I said Matthew 19, Matthew 20. Go Matthew 20. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, no, Matthew 20, right next to Matthew 19. But um, yeah, you, uh, we have a little bit of that this morning, right? So we saw on Wednesday night, if you're with us, really what we studied Wednesday night and what we'll look at this morning are very connected. And if you'll remember, Wednesday night, we're in the middle of Jesus with his disciples on his way to Jerusalem. And as people who know kind of the full story, we know what happens when they get to Jerusalem, right? We know the crucifixion. We know the suffering that Christ is going to go through. But for the disciples, this hasn't quite sunk in yet. And Jesus has reminded them several times. And each time, they have failed to respond how you would expect them to, right? So you go back to chapter 16. You look at verses 21 and 23, 21 to 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it. Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. You would think with this interaction, the disciples would have figured it out, right? But they still don't respond how you would expect them to. In chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, and while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised up on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. And then this past Wednesday night, we saw in chapter 20, verses 17 to 19, Jesus was about to go to Jerusalem, and he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. And so now we're going to see how they respond to this third time that Jesus has told them, What's going to happen when they get to Jerusalem? And this third time, it is not the kind of response you would expect or hope from them at this point. So we're going to look at verses 20 to 28 this morning, and we're going to look at it in three different parts. Part one, an out-of-touch question. Part two, a reality check. And part three, a lesson on greatness. What we see here is true greatness comes from following Christ's example of service. True greatness comes from following Christ's example of service. So let's look at, we'll read the full passage and then we'll go piece by piece here. But because it's so tied together, 
I'm going to go ahead and just read verse 17. Start there and go through verse 28. As Jesus was about to go to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves. And on the way, he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that, your king, that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and one on your left. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but is for those whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not, this way, is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The first thing we have here is an out-of-touch question. Again, Jesus has just told them how he is going to Jerusalem to suffer, to die, and you would think that their response would be somewhat sympathetic. You would think that their response would recognize the gravity of what he has just told them. And instead, what do they start to focus on? Their own greatness. Their themselves. What they want. And so we see this out-of-touch question. The mother of the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus and asked, in your kingdom, can my son sit on your right and on your left? Now, when we see mother of the sons of Zebedee, that is James and John. So we're talking about James and John here, and it talks about their mother coming up to him. But if you look at parallel passages in the other gospels, and even what you see here, where who, who do the other apostles become indignant with, or who do they get mad at? James and John, right? The two brothers. So this isn't like something that the mom chose to just go do on her own without her son's involvement. You read the parallel passages, you see the context here, and it's obvious that James and John are in on this. And it's interesting, they come to Jesus bowing down. Now this isn't a key point from the passage, but I always think it's interesting when you're reading through the Gospels and you notice how often people are worshiping Jesus and bowing down to Jesus. And how often when people bow down to Jesus, when people worship Jesus, how often does he get mad at them? How often does he rebuke them for that? Never. Never. Yet, who is the only one that people should be worshiping and bowing down to? God, right? So if God is the one and only person that we should worship and bow down to, and yet we find it time and time in the gospel, over again in the Gospels where people are worshiping and bowing down to Jesus without any rebuke, what does that tell us about who Jesus is? He's God. 
So I think that's a really important side note because you're going to have people that will challenge you that the Gospels don't say, which it says in numerous different ways, but they'll challenge you that the Bible doesn't say that Jesus is God, that the Gospels don't say that Jesus is God. So every time I come across a passage where he's worshipped, which happens when he's born, right? The wise men show up and they worship him. It happens after he walks on the sea or he calms the storm or both, I forget. But they worship, the disciples worship him. Here's just another example, but there's others where Jesus is bowed down to without any kind of rebuke. But here, they're making a request of Jesus that is completely out of touch with the circumstances that they're in. They say, when you're in your kingdom, can these two sons of mine, that would be James and John, may they sit one on your left or one on your right and one on your left. It, um, the, when it says they want to sit on the right and the left, that is them saying, we want positions of prestige in your kingdom. We want positions of power in your kingdom. They're thinking about this as Jesus is about to tell them at really the, the completely incorrect way. They're thinking about this from a worldly ambition standpoint. They're still struggling with worldly ways of thinking and, and um, worldly prestige. And Jesus, how many times has he already told us throughout the Gospel of Matthew that greatness in the kingdom of God is not the same as greatness in this world? The way that this world pursues power and wealth and the worldly ambition we see around us all the time the kingdom of God works in totally different ways. Go all the way back to the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. When you look at Matthew 5 and verses 1 through 11, those Beatitudes, Jesus is really giving you the heart characteristics of the kingdom. And when you see there, it's blessed are the meek, blessed are the humble. But even just think of recent examples that we've had. In chapter 18, verses 1 to 4, the disciples came to Jesus and said, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And who does Jesus call? He calls a child to himself and set the child before them and said, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It, it's a... Uh, it would have been a, just a very shocking illustration for the disciples to see this child set before them and for Jesus to say, you know, it's those who humbly come to me like a child that will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Chapter 19, you, you look at verse 14, right? Um, the children again were coming to Jesus and the disciples were rebuking him and Jesus stops them from rebuking the children in chapter 19, verse 14, and says, Let the children alone. Do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And then we get a very stark contrast when the rich young ruler comes up, like right after that, right? And the rich young ruler, he is just morally, from an outward perspective, he's like, Hey, I keep all the laws, I, I follow all the rules. From a worldly perspective, people would look at him and say, he is very good. 
and he was wealthy. People would look at his life and say, look at how much God has blessed him. And Jesus is going to tell him, hey, look, until you come to me completely empty-handed, you're willing to sell everything and just follow me, follow me alone, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And Jesus really draws a contrast between those who are rich in this world and those who are rich in faith in him. But it's obvious, despite throughout the ministry of Christ, how he has taught them the difference between worldly riches, worldly ambition, and those who are rich in faith and humility in the kingdom of God, it's, obviously, it's obvious they still are struggling with thinking of the kingdom of God from a worldly perspective. And what's interesting here is think of through the gospel. And oftentimes, like, who did Peter, or who did Jesus rebuke in this first passage, one of the first passages we looked at this morning? It was Peter, right? It was Peter who ends up becoming one of the preeminent apostles. He's got two letters in the Bible that he wrote. And it's him that Jesus says, hey, get behind me, Satan. And then here you have James and John. It's interesting, right? Like, these aren't the fringe apostles. These aren't like fringe disciples, but these are some who are the closest to Jesus that continue to struggle. They come to Jesus with this question that is very much out of place with the circumstances. And what is the response of Jesus? He gives them a reality check. Verses 22 and 23. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, we are able. And he said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not not mine to give, but is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Jesus tells them, essentially, You don't really know what you're asking for. You don't really know what you're asking for. Think about Christ and what Christ has accomplished for us in our redemption. And the place he he sits at in his throne is, is ruler of the kingdom of heaven, ruler of all things. Did this come at a cheap price? For Jesus? No. It, it cost him his life. It, co- he, it cost him the bearing of the full wrath of God for our sins. Look at Luke, and it's interesting the whole cup reference, right? Because this is exactly how Jesus looks at it. Luke chapter 22, verse 42. Jesus, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's looking forward to his crucifixion. And certainly as a human, Jesus didn't look forward to the physical suffering. Jesus knew what kind of physical pain awaited him on the cross. He was, he was just as human as you and me. But beyond the physical suffering, as great as that was, Jesus also knew the suffering that was going to come 
in taking on our sins in the separation from the Father. For eternity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, this Trinity had existed in perfect fellowship. At no point had that fellowship been anything other than perfect. And there's this ongoing love relationship that has always existed in perfection between the Father and the Son. And Jesus knew that in taking on our sinfulness, that fellowship would be broken in ways that we can't even really understand. I mean, that gets beyond our comprehension. But to cause a divide within the Trinity, that just shows you as incomprehensible as that is, the weight of our sin that Jesus took upon himself at the cross. And so when you see Jesus suffering in the garden as he thinks forward to what's about to take place in the crucifixion, the physical pain, yes, that's bad. But it's the pain of taking on our sinfulness that is even worse. And Jesus talks about this cup. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. So, so this reference to the cup is suffering is something that we see numerous time, numerous times. And what Jesus is telling James and John and their mother here is you're not really taking serious the level of suffering that's about to take place. That's why they're still asking this question, right? Because they haven't realized the gravity. When Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem to be crucified and scourged, they haven't recognized the gravity of what Jesus is really talking about there. And so they're not taking seriously the suffering. They're not taking serious, they're, they're treating it too lightly. It's kind of like you ever see somebody who gets into a long distance run, like, a, like they're like, hey, I'm going to go jog two miles. I'm going to go jog three miles. And they don't take it serious. They've never done it before. So like they go sprinting right out the gate. And it's like, okay, wow, you're impressive for like five minutes at the most, right? And then they're done. Like they didn't take serious what they were about to take on. That's what you see with them in verse 22. Like Jesus says, y'all don't know what you're asking for. And they're like, oh no, we're good. We can handle it. We can take it on. Jesus says, are you able to drink the cup I'm about to drink? Now, we would know the obvious answer to that is no way, right? Like, it, for us, because we have the full story, we know what happens. The obvious answer is no way, but they don't get it. Oh, yeah, we're able to. It's interesting how Jesus responds to that, right? Like, it's like Jesus is like, okay, let's just move on. You're not going to get it. He, he says, my cup you shall drink. And it, it's true. If you look at what takes place later in the lives of James and John, both end up suffering greatly for the gospel. Both end up suffering greatly for Christ in ways that they probably would have never imagined at this point in their life. So Acts chapter 12 we find out about James being martyred. Acts chapter 12, verse 2. This is after Peter is arrested and delivered. It says, Now at about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death 
with the sword. What happened to John? Anybody know what happened to him? John? Okay. No, you're, John the Baptist was beheaded. Though that's a good point, though. There's a few Johns we're working with here. What happened to this John? Yeah, there you go. So Revelation. Revelation actually gets written by this very John that we're talking about here. And he tells you where he's writing this from. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, he says, I, John, your brother, and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and the perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So they don't realize that they are going to suffer for the gospel. They are going to suffer for Christ. But they don't realize the weight of it at this point. Otherwise, I don't think they would have been so quick to say, we are able. Yet when the suffering did come, the Spirit sustained them. They were both faithful to the end. Jesus then says something interesting here that at least strikes me as interesting at first. He says, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared for my Father. I think what Jesus is saying here is like, look, the race isn't even finished, people. Uh, I'm not here to give out heavenly rewards at this time. The race isn't even finished. Now, the time will come when you will stand before God, the Father, the judge, and the faithfulness of how you run the race will be rewarded, but now is not the time. Now is not the time. That time will come when you stand before my Father. So we have a very out-of-place question, an out-of-touch question, and a reality check from Jesus but now he's about to give them a lesson on true greatness. And the disciples really give him the opportunity, not only by James and John coming with their mom in this very out-of-touch question. I mean, that in and of itself does give Jesus a little bit of an opportunity, but the rest of the disciples, the rest of the apostles, really highlight the opportunity in verse 24. Hearing this conversation, the other ten become indignant with the two brothers, James and John. So that's where we get our true lesson on greatness. Jesus called them, all twelve, to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life is a ransom for many. The first thing that Jesus tells them here in verse 25 is, look, you are acting very worldly. You are not acting like followers of me. You are not acting in our day and age like the way we would say it. You are not acting like a Christian. You are not acting like a follower of Christ. You, he says in verse 25 that this is how the world acts. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. 
and their great men exercise authority over them. Isn't that the way the world operates? People want to be the ones in power. People want to be the ones who get to tell others what to do. And people work hard for that, you know? People work hard to excel in their career. And sure, there's the money aspect, but sometimes some people just like to be the boss. And you'll experience that when you work with people who seem to have no other joy than simply telling what other people what to do and putting them down. And we look up in a worldly sense. The world looks up to those who are in power. But what Jesus says is that as followers of Christ, our priorities should be much, much different. And this is something that happens throughout the Bible, right? Throughout the Bible, it tells us that if we're going to be followers of Christ, we should live and act differently than the world around us. The world acts this way, but as followers of Jesus, you should act this way. And that's what we have here. Just another example of that principle where Jesus says, the world acts different, but you, you the world acts this way, but you should act differently. He says, it is not this way among you. Your life, if you're going to follow me, should be different. And here is what Jesus says is true greatness. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. That is so different than how we think as natural people, right? Slave? Who wants to be a slave? No. That's a bad thing. Who wants to be at the bottom? No. That's a bad thing. But Jesus says, if you want to true, know true greatness, it comes in serving one another. How, what I love about this is it is so applicable to our lives. Even at any stage, young, middle, old, do you have the opportunity to serve others? Yes. And where do you have the opportunity to serve others? All over the place. At church, do you have the opportunity to serve one another? Absolutely. And this happens in two different ways. This happens in formal ways. That's what's great about church and like these opportunities that Alejandro is setting up for us where you can sign up to like help with the audiovisual stuff, help as a greeter, help with cleanup and tear down. Like these are official ways to serve. And what I like about official ways to serve like that is it, it just really helps you to be purposeful. Like, okay, here's a task I know I need to be doing. Here's something I've given a responsibility for. And am I doing that? Like, am I fulfilling that task? So take advantage of those. Because that's one way throughout your life you can serve in the church is in official respects. And you see it all around us, right? You've got people who serve officially in the children's ministry. Like they have responsibilities that on a Sunday morning, they know they've got to go take care of. You've got people that serve officially with Tara, or uh, 
set up and tear down every day, right? Or every Sunday. You've got people officially serving with audiovisual and with the music. Like there's all sorts of official ways to do it. So take advantage of those things. Like you need to seriously be thinking and praying about, okay, Alejandro's setting up these opportunities to serve. I want to do that. And then on Sunday mornings, children's ministry and the set up teardown stuff, there's plenty of official ways. So that's one way you serve in the church. But just as importantly is in unofficial ways. When you just show up and make a determined effort that, look, I'm here not for myself, but to worship God and to be a part of the body, body of Christ, which means I want to look for ways to just love the people or, that are around me, to get to know them, get to know what's going on in their lives. What are some of the hard things that are going on in their lives? What are some of the things they struggle with? And praying for them. Like, okay, I want to get to know you so that I can encourage you and I can pray for you. That's what the church is about. It's about coming together to serve one another, to glorify Christ, but in, in doing so, to love one another. And as Galatians, I believe it's 6.2 tells us, they're by fulfilling the law of Christ. Look for ways to serve and love one another. And do we have an example of this kind of service? We read it already when we read the passage, right? Christ himself. It, it, this isn't Jesus telling us to do something that he can't relate to. This isn't Jesus telling us to do something that he himself didn't do to the utmost and in perfection. Christ is our example. Look at verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Like Alejandro mentioned the other night, we've seen it a few times recently in Matthew. This son of man phrase for the apostles, for these first century Jews, they would have recognized that phrase from Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel chapter 7 talks about the, the Messiah and his future reign over the kingdom of God. And the Messiah is referred to as the Son of Man. So when Jesus repeatedly here in chapters 19 and 20, we've seen it again a few times, refers to himself as the Son of Man, what he is telling the apostles is yes. What you all have been looking for from the Old Testament, what Daniel was talking about in Daniel chapter 7 about the future ruler of the kingdom of heaven, I am it. I am the Messiah. And but here's what's so strange, right? Because they would have looked at Daniel 7 and been like, okay, wow, here's this mighty ruler, this conqueror who's going to come in and crush the nations and crush his enemies. But look how Jesus presents himself. The Son of Man himself did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's really astonishing, right? We're talking about God here. So when we talk about God, if we think of it from a worldly perspective, it should be the other way around, right? Like when powerful people 
come to you. I don't know. When you interact with powerful people at work, like the CEO is coming into the office, what does everybody do? Okay, how can we make it great for the CEO? Like, okay, what kind of food does he like? How can we, how can we be on our best behavior and make it clean and like perfect? And how can we pamper the CEO while he's here? From a worldly perspective, we think of it as the opposite way. The powerful come and we should be serving them. So when we think about God, you can't get any more powerful, right? Like obviously we should be the ones who serve God. Yet when Jesus came to this earth, it was God coming to serve us, to die for our sins. Again, it should be backwards. Like God created us and we sinned against him. We chose willfully to rebel against our creator. If we think about it from a worldly perspective, it should have been on us to try to make that relationship right. It should have been on us to like, hey, let me see if I can work myself back into right relationship with God. But when you understand God's righteousness and our sinfulness, you realize that's impossible. And that's where the gospel becomes really remarkable because this great God that we chose to rebel against and sin against chose to build the path to reconciliation for us, chose to take action to reconcile us to him. The Son of Man came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so the question for us, if God can in this way serve those who rebel against him, how much more should we be able to serve one another, right? If God can serve this way, don't you think I should be willing to serve those who are around me, to serve those in the church? Look at the example of Christ. Look at the example of Christ. And so as we talk about how to apply this, I just want you to look at the difference between worldly ambition and what Jesus calls us to in terms of true greatness. And I want us to look at our lives and think, okay, how can I serve those who are around me? How can I serve the church? And like I said, take advantage of when we have those official capacities to serve in, take advantage of those because they're absolutely critical. And it's also where the leadership of the church is saying, hey, here's where we need some help. Here's where we need people to serve. But that heart of service, that, that heart of love that Jesus shows us, that should be the way we choose to interact with each other all the time, right? Like, so when you come to church, evaluate your heart in coming to church. Why are you here? Is it number one, to worship God, but number two, also to serve one another. Look for ways to love one another, be encouraging to one another, pray for one another. And if there's ways to help each other, like, hey, you need something? Guess what? I have a way to help you out with that need. Let me do that. And if you can't, pray for them because God's able to take care of all needs. But the example for us is Jesus Christ. 
If the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, then how much more should we be willing to serve one another? Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much for your example and your love and the perfect way in which you serve us. And I just pray that we would take that example to heart and that when we come together, we would look for ways to love each other, that we wouldn't be caught up in worldly ambition, worldly focus, but that we would see how you love and how you serve and that we would seek to emulate that with one another and be an encouragement to one another and a blessing to one another. And I pray this morning as we go on to worship service that you'd help us to do just that and to focus on worshiping and glorifying you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.